Section 19. Part 5 of Chapter 2 of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. Commentaries on the Laws of England by William Blackstone, Book 1, Chapter 2, Part 5. I proceed now, sixthly, to the method of making laws, which is much the same in both houses, and I shall touch it very briefly, beginning in the House of Commons. But first I must premise that for dispatch of business, each House of Parliament has its Speaker. The Speaker of the House of Lords is the Lord Chancellor, or Keeper of the King's Great Seal, whose office it is to preside there and manage the formality of business. The Speaker of the House of Commons is chosen by the House, but must be approved by the King, and herein the usage of the two Houses differs, that the Speaker of the House of Commons cannot give his opinion or argue any question in the House, but the Speaker of the House of Lords may. In each House the Act of the Majority binds the whole, and this majority is declared by votes openly and publicly given, not as at Venice and many other senatorial assemblies, privately or by ballot. This latter method may be serviceable to prevent intrigues and unconstitutional combinations, but is impossible to be practised with us, at least in the House of Commons, where every member's conduct is subject to the future censure of his constituents, and therefore should be openly submitted to their inspection. To bring a bill into the House, if the relief sought by it is of a private nature, it is first necessary to prefer a petition, which must be presented by a member, and usually sets forth the grievance desired to be remedied. This petition, when founded on facts that may be in their nature disputed, is referred to a committee of members who examine the matter alleged and accordingly report it to the House, and then, or otherwise upon the mere petition, leave is given to bring in the bill. In public matters the bill is brought in upon motion made to the House without any petition at all. Formerly all bills were drawn in the form of petitions, which were entered upon the Parliament rolls, with the King's answer thereunto subjoined, not in any settled form of words, but as the circumstances of the case required, and at the end of each Parliament the judges drew them into the form of a statute which was entered on the statute rolls. In the reign of Henry V, to prevent mistakes and abuses, the statutes were drawn up by the judges before the end of the Parliament, and in the reign of Henry VI, bills in the form of acts, according to the modern custom, were first introduced. The persons directed to bring in the bill, present it in a competent time to the House, drawn out on paper, with a multitude of blanks or void spaces where anything occurs that is dubious or necessary to be settled by the Parliament itself, such especially as the precise date of times, the nature and quantity of penalties, or of any sums of money to be raised, being indeed only the skeleton of the bill. In the House of Lords, if the bill begins there, 
It is, when of a private nature, perused by two of the judges, who settle all points of legal propriety. This is read a first time, and at a convenient distance a second time, and after each reading the Speaker opens to the House the substance of the bill, and puts the question whether it shall proceed any farther. The introduction of the bill may be originally opposed, as the bill itself may at either of the readings, and if the opposition succeeds, the bill must be dropped for that sessions, as it must also, if opposed with success, in any of the subsequent stages. After the second reading, it is committed, that is, referred to a committee, which is either selected by the House in matters of small importance, or else, upon a bill of consequence, the House resolves itself into a committee of the whole House. A committee of the whole House is composed of every member, and to form it the Speaker quits the chair, another member being appointed chairman, and may sit and debate as a private member. In these committees the bill is debated clause by clause, amendments made, the blanks filled up, and sometimes the bill entirely new modelled. After it has gone through the committee, the chairman reports it to the House with such amendments as the committee have made, and then the House reconsider the whole bill again, and the question is repeatedly put upon every clause and amendment. When the House have agreed or disagreed to the amendments of the committee, and sometimes added new amendments of their own, the bill is then ordered to be engrossed, or written in a strong gross hand on one or more long rolls of parchment sewed together. When this is finished, it is read a third time, and amendments are sometimes then made to it, and, if a new clause be added, it is done by tacking a separate piece of parchment on the bill, which is called a rider. The speaker then again opens the contents, and holding it up in his hands puts the question whether the bill shall pass. If this is agreed to, one of the members is directed to carry it to the Lords, and desire their concurrence, who, attended by several more, carries it to the bar of the House of Peers, and there delivers it to their Speaker, who comes down from his woolsack to receive it. It there passes through the same forms as in the other House, except engrossing, which is already done, and, if rejected, no more notice is taken, but it passes sub silentio, to prevent unbecoming altercations. But if it is agreed to, the Lords send a message by two masters in chancery, or sometimes two of the judges, that they have agreed to the same, and the bill remains with the Lords if they have made no amendment to it. But if any amendments are made, such amendments are sent down with the bill to receive the concurrence of the Commons. If the Commons disagree to the amendments, a conference usually follows between members deputed from each House, who for the most part settle and adjust the difference. But if both Houses remain inflexible, the bill is dropped. If the Commons agree to the amendments, the bill is sent back to the Lords by one of the members, with a message to acquaint them therewith. The same forms are observed, mutatis mutandis, when the bill begins in the House of Lords. And when both Houses have done with the bill, it always is deposited in the House of Peers, 
to wait the royal assent. This may be given two ways. One, in person. When the king comes to the House of Peers, in his crown and royal robes, and sending for the commons to the bar, the titles of all the bills that have passed both houses are read, and the king's answer is declared by the clerk of the parliament in Norman French, a badge, it must be owned, now the only one remaining, of conquest, and which one could wish to see fall into total oblivion, unless it be reserved as a solemn memento to remind us that our liberties are mortal, having once been destroyed by a foreign force. If the king consents to a public bill, the clerk usually declares, Le Roy le vote, the king wills it so to be. If to a private bill, Soit fate comme il est desire, be it as it is desired. If the king refuses his assent, it is in the gentle language of Le Roy Servisera, the king will advise upon it. 2. By statute 33 Henry VIII, chapter 21, the king may give his assent by letters patent under his great seal, signed with his hand, and notified in his absence, to both houses assembled together in the high house. And when the bill has received the royal assent in either of these ways, it is then, and not before, a statute or act of parliament. This statute or act is placed among the records of the kingdom, there needing no formal promulgation to give it the force of a law, as was necessary by the civil law with regard to the emperor's edicts, because every man in England is, in judgment of law, party to the making of an act of parliament, being present thereat by his representatives. However, a copy thereof is usually printed at the king's press for the information of the whole land, and formerly, before the invention of printing, it was used to be published by the sheriff of every county, the king's writ being sent to him at the end of every session, together with a transcript of all the acts made at that session, commanding him, At statuta illa et omnis articulos in eis dem contentos, in singulis locis abi expedari viderit, publici proclamerai et firmita tenerai et observerai faciat. And the usage was to proclaim them at his county court, and there to keep them, that whoever would might read or take copies thereof, which custom continued till the reign of Henry the Seventh. An act of Parliament thus made is the exercise of the highest authority that this kingdom acknowledges upon earth. It hath power to bind every subject in the land and the dominions thereunto belonging, nay, even the king himself, if particularly named therein, and it cannot be altered, amended, dispensed with, suspended, or repealed, but in the same forms and by the same authority of Parliament. For it is a maxim in law that it requires the same strength to dissolve as to create an obligation. It is true it was formerly held that the king might in many cases dispense with penal statutes, but now by Statute 1, William and Mary, Statute 2, Chapter 2, it is declared that the suspending or dispensing with laws by regal authority without consent of Parliament is illegal. 
there remains only, in the seventh and last place, to add a word or two concerning the manner in which parliaments may be adjourned, prorogued, or dissolved. An adjournment is no more than a continuance of the session from one day to another, as the word itself signifies, and this is done by the authority of each house separately every day, and sometimes for a fortnight or a month together, as at Christmas or Easter, or upon other particular occasions. But the adjournment of one house is no adjournment of the other. It hath also been usual, when His Majesty hath signified his pleasure that both or either of the houses should adjourn themselves to a certain day, to obey the King's pleasure so signified, and to adjourn accordingly. Otherwise, besides the indecorum of a refusal, a prorogation would assuredly follow, which would often be very inconvenient to both public and private business, for prorogation puts an end to the session, and then such bills as are only begun and not perfected must be resumed de novo, if at all, in a subsequent session, whereas after an adjournment all things continue in the same state as at the time of the adjournment made, and may be proceeded on without any fresh commencement. A prorogation is the continuance of the Parliament from one session to another, as an adjournment is a continuation of the session from day to day. This is done by the royal authority, expressed either by the Lord Chancellor in His Majesty's presence, or by commission from the Crown, or frequently by proclamation. Both houses are necessarily prorogued at the same time, it not being a prorogation of the House of Lords or Commons, but of the Parliament. The session is never understood to be at an end until a prorogation, though unless some act be passed or some judgment given in Parliament, it is in truth no session at all. And formerly the usage was for the King to give the royal assent to all such bills as he approved at the end of every session, and then to prorogue the Parliament though sometimes only for a day or two, after which all business then depending in the houses was to be begun again, which custom obtained so strongly that it once became a question whether giving the royal assent to a single bill did not of course put an end to the session, and though it was then resolved in the negative, yet the notion was so deeply rooted that the statute 1 Charles I, chapter 7, was passed to declare that the king's assent to that and some other acts should not put an end to the session. And even so late as the restoration of Charles II, we find a proviso tacked to the first bill, then enacted, that His Majesty's assent thereto should not determine the session of Parliament. But it now seems to be allowed that a prorogation must be expressly made in order to determine the session, and if at the time of an actual rebellion or imminent danger of invasion the Parliament shall be separated by adjournment or prorogation, the King is empowered to call them together by proclamation with fourteen days' notice of the time appointed for their reassembling. A dissolution is the civil death of the Parliament, and this may be effected three ways. 1. By the King's will expressed either in person or by representation. For, as the King has the sole right of convening the Parliament, 
so also it is a branch of the royal prerogative that he may, whenever he pleases, prorogue the Parliament for a time, or put a final period to its existence. If nothing had a right to prorogue or dissolve a Parliament but itself, it might happen to become perpetual, and this would be extremely dangerous if at any time it should attempt to encroach upon the executive power, as was fatally experienced by the unfortunate King Charles I, who, having unadvisedly passed an act to continue the Parliament then in being till such time as it should please to dissolve itself, at last fell a sacrifice to that inordinate power which he himself had consented to give them. It is therefore extremely necessary that the Crown should be empowered to regulate the duration of these assemblies under the limitations which the English Constitution has prescribed, so that, on the one hand, they may frequently and regularly come together for the dispatch of business and redress of grievances, and may not, on the other, even with the consent of the Crown, be continued to an inconvenient or unconstitutional length. 2. A Parliament may be dissolved by the demise of the Crown. This dissolution formally happened immediately upon the death of the reigning sovereign, for he, being considered in law as the head of the Parliament, caput principium et finis, that failing, the whole body was held to be extinct. But, the calling of a new Parliament immediately on the inauguration of the successor being found inconvenient, and dangers being apprehended from having no Parliament in being in case of a disputed succession, it was enacted by the Statutes 7 and 8 William Third, Chapter 15, and 6 Anne, Chapter 7, that the Parliament in being shall continue for six months after the death of any king or queen, unless sooner prorogued or dissolved by the successor, that, if the Parliament be, at the time of the king's death, separated by adjournment or prorogation, it shall, notwithstanding, assemble immediately, and that, if no Parliament is then in being, the members of the last Parliament shall assemble, and be again a Parliament. 3. Lastly, a Parliament may be dissolved or expire by length of time. For if either the legislative body were perpetual, or might last for the life of the prince who convened them, as formerly, and were so to be supplied, by occasionally filling the vacancies with new representatives, in these cases, if it were once corrupted, the evil would be past all remedy. But when different bodies succeed each other, if the people see cause to disapprove of the present, they may rectify its faults in the next. A legislative assembly also, which is sure to be separated again, whereby its members will themselves become private men and subject to the full extent of the laws which they have enacted for others, will think themselves bound, in interest as well as duty, to make only such laws as are good. The utmost extent of time that the same Parliament was allowed to sit, by the Statute 6, William and Mary, Chapter 2, was three years, after the expiration of which, reckoning from the return of the first summons, the Parliament was to have no longer continuance. But by the Statute 1 George I, Statute 2, Chapter 38, 
in order professedly to prevent the great and continued expenses of frequent elections and the violent heats and animosities consequent thereupon and for the peace and security of the government then just recovering from the late rebellion this term was prolonged to seven years and what alone is an instance of the vast authority of parliament the very same house that was chosen for three years enacted its own continuance for seven so that as our constitution now stands the parliament must expire or die a natural death at the end of every seventh year if not sooner dissolved by the royal prerogative end of section 19 recording by graham redmond